So this is Luke 1, 26 to 56. It says that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting from Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why, this, and why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Well, as I said, last week we kicked off a teaching series called Bundle of Joy, which is a teaching series we're going to be going through in the lead up to Christmas, going through Luke chapter 1 and 2. And as we come up to Christmas time, there's a little bit of a weird phenomenon that we all kind of succumb to, and it's this idea that we get really, really obsessed with gift wrapping. Now, it's, it's not just a Christmas thing. You'll see it play out in birthdays from time to time. Um, yeah, it's hard enough buying the right gift for someone, but then I just about get an aneurysm trying to figure out how to wrap the thing. It's a, it's a very stressful time of year. You know, you've got to present the gift as well. Uh, you know, you get that weird sticky tape stuff, and if, it, if it's a bit awkward and it's too much sticky tape, people aren't that ready to receive the gift. It, it's a bit stressful in the O'Donnell household at the moment, I've got to tell you. <laughs> um, there's a picture up here. I don't know if uh, Diff's got it up there on the slide. There's a... Um, this is a gift that was given to me only a couple of years ago. As you can see, very age-appropriate uh, wrapping. 
for my gift there. Um, I have a very high metachlorian count, I like to say. But you can see the person who gave me this gift went to equal amount of effort selecting uh, the wrapping for the gift and not just the gift itself. Uh, there's another slide up there, Diff. Um, this was for my 30th birthday earlier this year in August. Um, as you can see, it's a beautiful bag, handpicked by my wife. Um, but inside of it was the real gift, and that was a brand new iPad from which I am speaking this morning. That was awesome. But wouldn't it be just a little bit weird if when Alice brought me my gift, instead of pulling out the iPad and going, oh, thank you, this is incredible, this will help me with sermon prep and, and logging stuff for work, imagine if I just picked up that bag and put it on my head and said, this is unreal, I, how good is this, I got a colourful bag for my 30th birthday, you'd be going, I think you, you're kind of missing the point, I mean, there's, there's beauty to be had here, but it's not really the main event, is it? <laughs> and sadly... The passage with which we are engaged today is a passage that across the centuries people have shifted their gaze away from the precious gift and put perhaps too much sight onto the God-bearer, the mother of our Lord. The miracle of Christmas is the incarnation. This is the enfleshing of God Almighty into human history. In fact, uh, theologian Herman Barbing put it this way, he said the incarnation is the central fact of the entire history of the world. And it's true, right? It literally splits time into BC and AD. This is a very big deal in human history. Now, if you were here last week, you'll know we looked at John the Baptist and we said that as a Christmas character, he doesn't really come to the front as much as perhaps he should. Luke begins his gospel account by showing you John the Baptist. So although he got... Not enough emphasis when it comes to Mary, perhaps she gets too much. So let's consider our text today. Where does this narrative begin? Well, we're told that in the sixth month, which is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, so she's on the back end of her second trimester, that uh, Mary was visited by an angel. Okay, now Mary at this time is probably somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. Some scholars even say she may have even been as young as 12. Just ponder that for a moment, who Gabriel is speaking to. And we're told that she's betrothed to Joseph. Now, when we think betrothed, we might think engagement. But in Jewish culture, betrothal was like engagement on steroids. Like you, you would already be calling each other husband and wife. And if you wanted to break it off at this point, you would have had to have got a divorce. So Jewish betrothal is very up there compared to our contemporary idea of engagement. And upon arrival, the words that Gabriel issues to Mary are these. Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. Now, what are we to infer from that phrase, O favoured one? What, what is Luke trying to get across here? Um, I mean, Mary seems a little bit bewildered by the statement herself. I mean, she says it there in verse 29 that she's greatly troubled by what Gabriel has to say. She's, I mean, she's not from anywhere special. She's in Nazareth. She's more of a pauper than she is a princess and she's going what why would you call me a relatively insignificant 12 13 year old girl why is an angel addressing me typically angels didn't address women throughout the biblical narrative now a lot of people have asked the question what what do we imply by this term favored one 
Well, to be honest, I think it's quite clear. As you continue the narrative, he says, well, here's, here's why I consider you favoured. He says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. What Gabriel is saying is that the reason she is considered favoured is not because of any internal merit of her own, but because she has been chosen as the appointed vessel through whom the second person of the Trinity would enter history. She is the favoured one. She's been given the utmost privilege. The, the Greek term is theotokos. It literally means God-bearer. And in this sense, when we say that she is the God-bearer, in that sense, it's perfectly okay to call Mary the mother of God. I'm perfectly okay with, with that title for Mary. She is the mother of God. She is the God-bearer. Um, in the 5th century, there was a lot of controversy about who exactly is Jesus. I mean, when we read about him in the gospel narratives, he seems to have these divine qualities. He exercises demons. He heals the sick. He seems to have these divine qualities, and yet he seems human. How do we, how do we mesh these two things together and get a correct understanding of, of who Jesus is? And some people said, well, well, maybe he was just born as a man, the same way any of us would be, and then maybe he kind of inherited his divine qualities at some later date, like maybe when he was baptized. And there was a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy around this, but there was a very famous council that kind of settled the issue. And it lined up with what the Bible teaches, that Jesus is truly and fully divine and truly and fully man. He is one person with two distinct natures. That is how we are to understand Jesus. And so, as this council has concluded, um, this is the person of Jesus. And it's fascinating that as you read the Gospels, you see these two natures kind of go hand in hand as you read certain accounts. I find it so fascinating. For example, John 11. Jesus has just heard that Lazarus is dead. People are weeping all around him. His disciples are saying, Lord, if you had been here, you could have prevented this from happening. And Jesus, with a kind of divine prophetic boldness says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He has a divine nature. People don't speak like that. This is the God man. But then the closer he gets to the scene, he makes his way over to the women there who are weeping. He sees Mary who's crying and he makes his way over to the tomb. What does he do when he sees the tomb? It says that Jesus wept. A moment ago, he says, I've come to awaken him. And now he's weeping. Do you see the interplay of the divine and human nature going on in Jesus? It is fascinating to see how it comes about. You, you even just stumble upon it in random phrases in the Bible where it says, Jesus, wearied from his journey, decided to sit down. <laughs> he, if he'd walked for a long time, his body got tired. I did a five-hour walk in Tassie. I'm still tired about it, I'm sure. <laughs> Jesus was a man in that sense. His body fatigued. As Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. One person, two distinct natures, both human and divine. It's what theologians like to call the hypostatic union, if you're into that sort of thing. There's your big theological term for the morning. So Mary is the mother of God, not because of any inherent uh, merit of her own, not because she sits above the Godhead, but because she is the God-bearer in her womb, for nine months, she literally carried the second person of the Trinity. This is one of the greatest mysteries in the history of 
mankind, isn't it? It's incredible. This is God enfleshing himself. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, as we just sung. So this is why she is called the favoured one. But sadly, there's a, there's a very famous Bible translation used in the Roman Catholic Church known as the Latin Vulgate. Right? And instead of saying, O favoured one, it reads, Hail Mary, full of grace which is regrettably a a mistranslation. Now, there is no doubt grace happening here. There is grace and that God has appointed this young woman to be the God-bearer. But that's the grace it is. It's the kind of grace that gives her privilege. It's not saying that there's any grace in and of herself that she can dispense onto others. No, this is God dispensing grace onto her. You see, Luke is saying some incredible things about this faithful young woman. But he's pointing to Mary ultimately to point you to Jesus. The same way John the Baptist was the forerunner to point you to Jesus, Mary is the God-bearer to point you again to Jesus. She's not the main event in this passage. This is who Luke is trying to draw attention to and he does it in another way. If you were here last week, you'll know that we looked at John the Baptist and how he would come into the world. And then on the other end of chapter 1, this is how Jesus would come into the world. What Luke is doing is he's contrasting two different birth narratives. And look at some of the comparisons that he says. John the Baptist will be great before the Lord. Jesus, great, full stop, unqualified. John the Baptist was born of a woman who had formerly been barren. Jesus was born of a virgin. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist will turn many to the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Do you see what Luke's doing? He's wanting you to have a look at Jesus. John the Baptist and Mary are part of the story, but ultimately it's all about Jesus. Now, at this point you might be thinking, there's a a bit of a tricky thing we've got to navigate here as Christians. We're talking about a virgin birth. (laughs) This is peculiar isn't it i mean we are a people who believe that jesus died and rose again we believe that he was resurrected full bodily resurrection but that he was also born of a virgin christianity has got some curious claims and don't you worry mary's got the same question she says that there in verse 34 how will this be since i am a virgin and that's actually a very important question Um, in fact it's actually the very doctrine that ties together this idea that Jesus is both divine and human. The virgin birth is actually what makes that possible. Now, by no means am I trying to be a deliberate, raging Protestant this morning, (laughs) but there is a dogma that exists in the Roman Catholic Church that's referred to as the perpetual virginity of Mary. And that is to say that before she had this encounter with Gabriel, that she had previously given a, a lifetime vow of virginity, that she would not participate in intimate relations with Joseph uh, and that that was the vow of her life. Uh, and that, you know, what we read here in verse 34 is just an expression of that. But it's really quite unthinkable that in Jewish custom, if you are betrothed, if you're in engagement on steroids mode, you are preparing for marriage to think that you're about to enter a life of virginity. It would have been unthinkable. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that with marriage comes what he calls conjugal rights. So it's bizarre to say that she had vowed to be a virgin for life. And the other thing that makes it obviously clear, Jesus had brothers. (laughs) 
one of whom wrote a book of the Bible called James. In fact, you can read about Galatians 1.19. Paul says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So, although she was a virgin prior to Jesus, subsequently, her and Joseph had normal marital relations and he had brothers. How's that? Being the brother of Jesus. Imagine what those households would have been like. James, was that you again? Well, of course it was. <laughs> so how is it going to happen? Gabriel answers her, this is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, there is no kind of vulgarity in these words. Some people have tried to say that this is some kind of weird, pagan, mythical story where the divine and, and the human do something a bit weird physically. That's, that's not what's happening here. There is nothing vulgar in this statement. How we should read it? This is just a miracle taking place. That's what this is. In the same way that God created the earth out of nothing, ex nihilo, He would create life out of nothing in Mary's womb. The, the grand artist is painting himself into the story and he's doing it in such a way to keep Jesus from the original curse of original sin that happened back in the garden. Ever since the sin of Adam and Eve, subsequent generations that you and I are subject to have been falling under the curse of sin. But because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, he is free from that curse. And without a sinless Jesus, we have no atonement. The virgin birth is essential to Christian faith. He says the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. What he's saying is that Jesus' holiness is not the product of any virtue in Mary, but of the Holy Spirit who conceived him. Now, again, not trying to be a raging Protestant, but there is another doctrine referred to as the Immaculate Conception. Perhaps you've heard of it where some have said that, well, in order for Jesus to be sinless, and if Mary were to have such close proximity with him, specifically for a nine-month period, very close, then surely she must have been sinless. Wouldn't she have kind of infected him in some way if she were not sinless? And so some have said that Mary herself, before conceiving Jesus, was sinless, and that she didn't have the curse of original sin. And they they typically go to verse 42 where it says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb to basically say that Christ applied the benefits of his crosswork to Mary at, at an earlier point so that he would have a kind of holy entry point into human history. But the truth is that it doesn't line up with anything Luke is saying here. In fact, if you're into this kind of thing, there were medieval Catholic theologians at the time this discussion was starting to happen who were going, yeah, I think, I think we've taken it a bit too far. In fact, one of the most famous Catholic theologians of all time, Bernard of Claveau, he, he said it this way. He said, Whence they discovered such a hidden fact, on the same ground they might appoint festivals for the conception of the parents, grandparents, and grand, great-grandparents of Mary, and so on without end. What are you saying? That? Well, if, if Mary was sinless, how did she get sinless in the first place? Well, then her parents must have been sinless and her parents before that. How far back would you have to go? No, what makes Jesus unique is that the Holy Spirit is creating life out of nothing in Mary. That is how Jesus is holy. But regrettably, in the year 1854, on December 8th, which is 165 years ago to the day, today, 
Pope Pius IX declared this doctrine as dogma and an essential part of the Christian faith, despite all the pushback that was even happening within medieval Catholicism. Mary was an incredible young woman. She is a model of humility. Look at the characteristics of this 12, 13-year-old girl. See, unlike Zechariah last week who doubted the promises of God, look how Mary responds. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, how about that for a personal mandate for 2020? <laughs> what, what, if you're looking for something to cry over 2020, look no further than verse 38. Mary's got a lot for us. That's a mindset I could certainly adopt. She's, furthermore, she's, she's clearly immersed in the promises of God. She's saying that, you know, here comes uh, the one who's going to come and save Israel. His, his mercy is going to come as was promised in the Old Testament. But despite all that, Mary needed a saviour as much as any of us. You see, Jesus was free from the curse of sin because he was conceived by the Spirit, not because of anything in Mary. Look, look at what Mary declares there in verses 46 to 48. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. There's a song I listened to this week. It encapsulated it so well. It said, Mary, did you know that the baby you delivered would soon deliver you? That is the miracle that we see here in Luke 1. You see, she's aware of her own depravity. And the truth is, to say that Mary is sinless is actually to strip Christ of his unique attributes. You are depersonalizing the Godhead by attributing something to her that is reserved for God alone. It's like a seesaw. The second you try and elevate Mary on this side, you, by default, you reduce Christ on the other. And regrettably, to millions across the globe, Jesus has been so depersonalized that people are afraid of him. Do you know many are taught, millions around the globe, that if you need mercy and grace and forgiveness, be careful with Jesus. He is a stern judge. Don't approach him. On the other hand, though, get on good terms with his mother. Pray to her. She is full of grace and mercy, and she can kind of call him off for you, uh, appeal to him because of her intercession as a, somewhat of a middleman. Then you can receive grace, and Mary becomes the mediator between you and Jesus. That is what is taught around the globe, but... 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We don't have to retreat from Jesus. We can run boldly to Him. We, we don't need a middleman. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can have confidence to enter the holy places and draw near to Him. If you're like me and you need mercy this morning, run to Jesus. <laughs> Look at verse 50. And His Mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. The miracle of Christmas is that God is with us. He didn't, he didn't come to us with like a hospital gown doing universal precautions or you know, personalized protective equipment. Uh, I've got to stay away from the mess. No, He entered the story, entered the mess. He enfleshed Himself into it and He did it so that He could draw a people unto Himself. He wants you You see there's something quite regrettable in ascribing things to the mother of our lord that belong to christ alone 
you know, there's a lot of very good teaching going around in the Western Protestant world, Protestant world today on the topic of idolatry. And effectively, it, it, it comes along the lines of this. It says that idols aren't necessarily gods that you bow down to. Maybe it's just something healthy in your life. You've taken a good thing and turned it into a God thing, and it's effectively controlling you as though it were a God. People do it, for example, with their careers. You can idolize your career to such a point that you basically sacrifice your children on the altar. It's a form of idolatry. And I would say yes and amen to that kind of teaching. I have that kind of idolatry creep up in my life. But there's another category of the Bible when it comes to idolatry that is basically just defined by false religion. You are worshipping the wrong God at the wrong temple or you're trying to worship the true God in the wrong way. And so many have, I would say, rightly called the veneration of Mary as Mariolatry, the idolatry of Mary. And many have tried to use certain Latin phrases like, oh, well, you know, we give Latria worship unto God and Julia worship unto Mary as though we could use certain categories of, of where we place her. But if you trace the origins of those words, it all means the same thing. Sadly, Mariolatry increasingly crowds out the true Christian worship of God, as Herman Balvin once put it. You see, the world as it is does not need a divine mother. It needs a divine saviour. And the message of Christmas is that we have one. We have Jesus. John the Baptist pointed us to him and Mary does exactly the same thing. She rejoices in God, her saviour. So I want to finish with this. As you peer into the nativity scene this Christmas, let us be thankful for the faithfulness of Mary. May we model the kind of humble submission to the will of God the way she did as a 13-year-old girl. May every generation call her blessed for what she did. But let us never bow the knee. We are saved by Christ alone. She's not our co-mediator or our co-redeemer, but she's the mother of our Lord.